Check, check, check. Okay. I think one of the things that made that particular movie so popular, so interesting, the reason it grabbed people's attention so much was this theme of identity. So I, let's just talk about the movie real quick, and I'm about to ruin it. But if you haven't seen it yet, that was 15 years ago. That's your fault. We gave you plenty <laughs> of time. That is a very long time. So in the movie, there are two main characters. There's this psychologist, award-winning psychologist, and there's this boy. And so the movie starts, the psychologist gets home from a big event, and this, this ex-patient of his, it's crazed, shoots him. But not in the head or anything, it's, it's in the stomach. And then it fast-forwards about a year later where he has this new patient, and it's this young boy. And as he's trying to help the boy, the boy tells him kind of his main issue that's making him act up, and it's the most memorable line of the movie, I see dead people, right? He tells him that. So throughout the movie, he's trying to help him with this strange thing that he sees all these dead people and maybe he's helping him some, but he's still struggling with his own life stuff. And so he's talking to his wife and she's asleep and her hand opens and his wedding ring falls on the ground and he looks at his hand and the wedding ring is on there and he realizes he's one of the dead people that the kid has been seeing the entire time. And by that time in the movie, you're blown away. You're thinking back to the entire thing. It's an amazing twist and you go home happy. But that was the crazy thing about the movie. He was dead the whole time, and we didn't know it, and he didn't know it. Now, I don't think that any of us, when we die, or anybody when they die, hangs around for a little bit to work out their prior life problems, but I do think there's a truth in there that would be good for us to think about, and it's that truth about identity. Because he was walking around talking to people, and he was doing stuff, and he had the impression that he was alive while he was dead the entire time. And you wonder, I wonder if there was some way he could have known that he was actually dead. And this morning, the Apostle John, as we look in 1 John, he wants us to ask ourselves a similar question. Are you really alive? We're not talking about physical life, we're talking about spiritual life. I assume if you're here today that you are spiritually alive. There is such thing as uh, that you're uh, physically alive, but there is such thing as spiritual life and death. And here's a real scary possibility. It is very possible for you to be fully convinced that you have spiritual life and yet still be dead. It is very possible to look to yourself and to other people just like everybody else who has spiritual life. And to still be spiritually dead, to be self-deceived and to deceive other people. So this is an important question for us to ask. Because if we don't have spiritual life, then we are never going to be able to live the way we were made to live. Instead, we'll waste our lives. And then after this life, we'll continue to be in eternal death. I want you to have life. And so does John. So I want you to turn to 1 John 3. Because in 1 John 3, the apostle John gives us a way to know whether or not we're alive. And really simply, that, that thing that he gives us to know is our love. So over and over today, I'm going to keep referring to John. I'm not talking about Pastor John. I think he's amazing, but uh, we're going to talk about the Apostle John. So just so you know who the Apostle John is, this is the same John who was one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus called him. He, he follows him. This is the same John who writes the Gospel of John. This John who was in the uh, inner circle even of the, of the disciples, really close to Jesus. And he also wrote Revelation, and he wrote three epistles. This is the first one, 1 John. And in this epistle, he's helping us think about really important things like uh, how do we know whether or not we're Christians? That's one of the most important questions. 
And as he's discussing identity, he says this in 1 John verse 11. This is what he says. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's God's word. And I think the main thing that we see from these verses is that love shows whether or not we're alive. It's love that shows whether or not we're alive. And so we're going to walk through this passage and see how John, the Apostle John, works out this argument. Three points. And the first point is that love is your calling. That's the first thing we want you to know about love is that love is your calling. I wonder if you've ever looked at um, a Christian bookstore, maybe, and you've uh, looked at maybe a little section that shows the top ten Christian books at any time. Some of the words that are in those most popular uh, Christian books, sometimes in quotations, Christian books, there's always going to be words like purpose and and destiny and uh, fate and fulfilling your your dreams. And and one of the reasons a lot of these words are in there is because that's just something that's very interesting to us. We want to know, hey, what is it that I'm here for? What is it that I'm supposed to do? And it's fine to to ask those questions, but we we are really preoccupied with them. And unfortunately, sometimes we're so obsessed with a particular kind of calling and, and destiny and purpose that we look over the very clear things God has told us about what we're called to do. And the thing I love about this verse is without a shadow of a doubt, We know what we're called to, right? You don't need to double check. You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to seek any counsel. Right here, it's very clear that God has called you to love. And that's what he's telling us here in 1 John 3. Right before these verses in verse 10, John John drops a bomb and he says, if you don't practice righteousness and love your brother, you're not a child of God, but you're actually a child of the devil, which is an offensive and shocking thing to say. Not normally something you'd write in a letter to some people you like. But he's going to tell us why he said it. Let's read verse 11 again. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. You know, we like to hear new things and controversial things. But John reminds them of a very simple thing, something they've heard from the beginning, to love one another. Which isn't an easy thing for sinners like us to do because we are naturally very self-interested. Right. And and not very others focused from the moment where we wake up. Our our thoughts are so often just uh, just dominated by thoughts about ourselves. We're thinking about how we feel. We're thinking about what we want. We think about all the things that we need to get done. And many of us spend our days serving others at an office or serving others at home. So even though we're serving other people, still our thoughts are dominated by how we look and how we deserve more credit, and how we deserve better, how we deserve appreciation. Love is not an easy thing for us because it requires us to look beyond ourselves. It's so hard for us to do. But John's calling him to do it. And when he says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, he means since you follow Jesus. This is one of the foundational things about following Jesus, one of the first things you heard that you're supposed to love one another. 
That's what it means by from the beginning. It's part of our calling. And love is clearly an important theme to John. And I think one of the reasons is because he was such close friends with Jesus. It was so central in what Jesus taught. And so he was around Jesus so much. And as John talks about love here and in other places in Scripture, it's almost like he's giving a commentary on, on stuff that Jesus has already said. You know, he tells us about one of these times he was with Jesus in John 13. And after Jesus said, you know, they ate together, he washed their feet, told them someone was going to betray him. And Jesus said this to the disciples. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And John's giving us a little bit of a commentary on that right now. And it'll show us that love is, it's not this optional thing. It's, it's really an indispensable part of what it means to follow Jesus. And without it, there is no new life in us. And if it's so important, we, we should probably know what it is, right? Often we think about love as like uh, some fuzzy feeling in our stomach. When we think love, we think about Valentine's Day and those disgusting heart candies that people give each other because they don't love each other, clearly. <laughs> Otherwise, why would I give you heart-shaped chalk to eat? <laughs> Many of us got our ideas about love from romantic comedies and Young adult fiction, and for me, it was R&B songs. Not a good place to learn about love. I, I want to read an example of, of a song that talks about how we uh, usually think about love. The lyrics say, see, I don't need no alcohol. Your love makes me feel 10 feet tall. Without it, I'd go through withdrawal, because nothing even matters at all. Now the skies could fall. Not even if my boss should call the world, it seems so very small, because nothing even matters at all. You're part of my identity. I sometimes have the tendency to look at you religiously. Because <laughs> nothing even matters to me. Now, in these songs, first of all, I'm not dissing the miseducation of Lauren Hill. Some people would leave our church if I said such things. Um, some of y'all got more excited about those lyrics than the worship songs we sang. We'll talk about that later. However, this song, this, this is the usual kind of love that our world talks about when we think love. We think the kind of um, obsession and infatuation with somebody that's so deep that we would build our entire lives around them. In this song, they're saying, I don't care about anything else besides you. I don't care about my job. I don't care about anybody else. Nothing else matters except you and that kind of love that builds your life around just another sinner like yourself is not the kind of love that John is talking about in his text. John is talking about something uh, much different than that. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with romantic love. There's much room for that in Scripture, even intoxicating romantic love. Shout out to my wife. That's just not, that's just not what John is talking about right here. He has in mind a different kind of love. So let's make clear what we mean to make sure we're thinking in, in biblical categories. When John says love, it isn't just a strong feeling. It's more substantial than that. It's more enduring than that. It's more difficult than that. Here's how I'm going to define love based on these verses and what John's talking about here. Love is a holy affection for someone and a selfless commitment to their good. Love is a holy affection for someone and a selfless commitment to their good. That's the sense of love we get in this passage. So as we go throughout this sermon, I want you to have that in mind to make sure we're thinking what Scripture is thinking when we say that love is our calling. So then thinking about these verses and how John calls them to love, he doesn't just talk about love in general. 
He's saying specifically they should love one another. Talking to Christians. So, of course, we're supposed to love everybody. Of course, Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. And, and everyone is our neighbor based on what Jesus said in the story of the Good Samaritan. But what John is talking about specifically here is love within the body of Christ. Love within the spiritual family. He's talking about brotherly love. That's what he's saying is our calling here. And somebody may say, now why is John, the Apostle John, emphasizing that? Why would you devote a whole sermon to thinking about how Christians should, you know, interact with each other? Isn't that too isolated and insular? Shouldn't we be talking about how to reach the world? Well, I just want to say we should be very careful about making that kind of unhelpful distinction. As if loving one another and, and reaching the world are enemies, they're not enemies, they're friends. Right? We would be dumb to think that our love for one another is, is unrelated to us reaching the nations, especially when Jesus says the reason we to love one another in John 13 is because by this, all people will know that you are our disciples. So if that's how people know we're the disciples of Jesus, then our love for each other is a key factor, not only in reaching our neighborhood, but in reaching the nations. Because how else are people going to know that we represent Jesus? What badge do we bring to let people know we're his ambassadors? Our love for one another is what allows us to love our neighbor the way that we should. So the Apostle John is not saying you shouldn't think intentionally about loving your neighbor. But he's saying neglecting love for one another works against that. Uh, a few years back at uh, my church in D.C., there was a, a really old member of the church. He was like in his 90s. So my entire time there, I actually never saw him because he never actually was able to attend church, but he was still a member. People would try to care for him from afar, and he died. And I had his funeral at the church. Almost, almost none of the current members even knew this man, but when his funeral came up, there were uh, the, the, uh, the hall, the, the West Hall, his church where the funeral was, was filled with people. A ton of people came because even though they didn't know him, he was their Christian brother. They, they wanted to, to celebrate his life. They, they wanted to send him off well. They wanted to sing songs and think about what it means to trust in Jesus. And the unbelieving family and friends of this man were blown away. Because what they saw was a love not based on something that that man was able to do for them, but just the love that was based in the fact that they had unity in Jesus. And that said something very unique and specific about this community of people. Our love for one another says something about the Lord that we're united in. It's our badge. It's how people know who we are. So again... We're called to love our neighbor, but we have a unique responsibility to love each other. Just like I'm called to love everybody in the world, but I have a unique responsibility to my wife and my son and my daughter. This is our spiritual family. And I hope we don't downplay the, uh, the reality of, uh, of being one another's brothers and sisters. I hope we don't think it's just a random metaphor, right? It's not just like, what's up, bro, or what's up, fam, right? It's not a random metaphor. I mean, there's a very real, deep family that we have in one another. And we shouldn't think that spiritual family is lesser than physical family. It's greater in many ways. There's a much deeper unity than just blood in our veins and, and common upbringing. It's real family there. And I think that's one of the sweetest things about knowing Jesus is having a whole lot of brothers and sisters. When I look around this room, there are a lot of people who I don't have that much in common with naturally but they're my family. I mean, even if you look at what happened a moment ago, Bob was up here praying. Bob, an older white man, 
who has a blazer on, and then you had Isaac behind him with a, a bandana on like Tupac and Tim's. <laughs> and yet they're family. Right? They're family. Right, there are sometimes when I will go hang out with somebody, he's never gonna wear that bandana again. Um, <laughs> there are sometimes when I'll hang out with somebody and I'll realize we have absolutely nothing in common except for Jesus, and yet we have a very deep spiritual bond. It's natural because we're both in Christ. You ever seen people who've gone through uh, similar, very um, significant life things, right? Like somebody, like people who have uh, deep illnesses, they, they have a kind of bond with one another. Or people who've been at war or people who are just older who go through hard things together, there's a bond because that changes you and you have something significant in common. And it's the same thing for all of us who very significantly have passed from death to life and are filled with the Spirit of God and are going to the same eternity to worship the same God forever. We have a very deep spiritual bond. I don't want you to downplay that. I am your brother in a very real sense. And that's a very amazing gift that God has given us. Some of us, if we thought about our, uh, our natural families and the way that we interact with one another, it wouldn't be characterized by love at all. But the beautiful thing is, God has given you a brand new family, a big family. Some of us didn't have fathers, but God will give us spiritual fathers. Right? Some of us don't know what a husband and wife should actually be like, but we get to see a new family in Christ be husband and wife. We get to have people care for us and love us. It's a beautiful thing God has given us. We should not see it as a burden to have brothers and sisters, but a privilege, a gift from God to be able to love one another. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, a few years back uh, when I was in D.C., um, my family didn't live in D.C., they were in Texas, and Jessica's family didn't live in D.C., they were in Pittsburgh. Um, so we didn't have any family family in D.C. I was on tour, um, and my son had gotten a little bit sick right before I left. I mean, his, his face was breaking out kind of weird, but it was like he always has weird skin things. I really hated I had to go. I'm like, I'm going to pray for y'all, and we're out. And my wife is calling me, and he's getting a little bit worse. And so, okay, I'm looking forward to being able to go home in a couple of days. But we're driving through the mountains of Nevada. Don't ask me why we was in the mountains of Nevada, but we're driving through the mountains of Nevada, and we end up getting stuck in the snow, and we're stuck. And then I keep hearing my son is getting worse, and then I can't even get cell service. And the last thing I see, my wife sends me this picture. I'm seeing a picture like this of my son, this picture that's coming up on the screen. So my son gets... Um, this very strange kind of infection on his face, and it is really serious, and he ends up being in the hospital for, for many, many days. And you can imagine me as a father of my six-month-old, how distraught I am that I'm stuck out on the road. I can't even be there and help my wife. And we don't have any family there either. But let me tell you the amazing thing that happens. Our family in Christ steps up. While Jessica's at the hospital for many days, people are showing up. They're asking for ways to help. They're just being there. They're, they're comforting her. They're praying for her. Even one night, um, you know, he's so distraught. He, he won't sleep on his own. He wants to be held. But uh, you're not allowed to fall asleep with, with the child in your arms in an emergency room. So th there was a sister. Her name was Eli. She came, and she was hanging with Jessica, and she stayed up the entire night holding cue so Jessica could get some rest. Now, for me... As a father of a six-month-old, 
you cannot imagine how comforting it was to know that my family and Jesus stepped up and showed that they were our family in Jesus. I hope we grasp the privilege that it is to have family in Jesus and what it means to really love one another. You can take the disturbing picture off the screen. God bless. And, you know, it doesn't always seem exciting for us to do those kind of things. Sometimes we get excited about grand stuff, like jumping on a plane and, you know, getting in the jungle and telling people about Jesus while snakes bite at our ankles. That seems exciting and grand to us. But we don't always get excited about just jumping out of our car and worshiping with God's people and loving them. That doesn't seem grand and exciting to us. And if it doesn't seem exciting to you to love one another, then you should really check your heart. Because at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus is to love the other followers of Jesus. When we get adopted by this common father, that means we have brothers and sisters. You cannot say you love the father and ignore your family. You cannot take on his name and ignore the others who bear his name. We're called to love one another. And because it's close to God's heart, it should be close to ours as well. And so when I was working on this and reading this text and thinking about what prevents me from loving others as I should, I could think of a lot of reasons, but all of them could be summed up in one word, and that one word is selfishness. Too selfish. Too lazy to love others. It takes energy. I'm too proud to love others. I don't want to look bad. I don't want to do that. Right? I'd rather do other things, or I'm oblivious to other needs. It's, it's selfishness. And I think one of the common things that go through our heads when we think about loving other people is how busy we are. We're so busy, so much to do. And I'm, I'm busy, too, so it's something I have to wrestle with. But here's the thing. If we don't have time to love one another, we got to make time to love one another. This is not an option. It's a basic part of following Jesus. Why? Why do we treat central parts of our discipleship like there's some kind of extra credit, extracurricular activities? Loving one another is not a bonus. It's part of what it means to follow Jesus. It's not I follow Jesus and I want to do extra, then I'll love his people. No, no, it's part of what it means to follow Jesus. There's no such thing as not having time for God's people. There may be rough seasons. But that cannot be the pattern of our life. Otherwise, we've abandoned the major part of our life in him. So I want to ask you, when you plan your weekend, I wonder if you plan to love others. When, when you think carefully about how to spend your money, I wonder if you're thinking about God's people when you're thinking about how you spend your money. Some of us even make these crazy detailed budgets but we, and to think about how we spend our money, but we never even think carefully about how we're going to spend our time and whether or not God's people should be in that. Maybe you have a day off from work. Do you ever consider using that free time to serve and to love God's people? There's a lot of people moving into this neighborhood, helping somebody move, encouraging somebody who's hurting. There's no such thing as not having time to love one another. No one says they don't have time to eat or they don't have time to sleep. Those are necessary things, and we should think of loving one another as just as necessary as that. Real quick, one of the most important ways we love one another is being here on Sunday morning, right? This, this is not an event that we show up to. This is our family time, and it's loving to your brothers and sisters to be here. And so I want to encourage you not to skip Sunday unless you absolutely have to. No one says, oh, I'm so tired. I'm not going to eat for a week. No, no, you don't say that, right? That's something you must do. Loving one another is something we must do. Some of us have jobs that leave us away on Sunday sometimes. We should think very carefully 
is this a job that's good for me if it means I can't gather with my family and obey Jesus in some ways? Now, I'm not saying this harshly and judgmentally. I'm someone who has a job that leads me away from church on some Sundays, right? But that should be a rare thing. And if you're wondering, hey, is this the right job for me? Because sometimes it keeps me from being able to gather with God's people. That's a great thing that we want to talk through with you, right? It's not one size fits all. People have different situations in different seasons, but it's a great thing to think about. We want to think about it carefully because this is an important part of loving one another. Where we sing songs to each other and we pray with each other and we encourage each other. It's part of what it means to love one another. Instead of seeing it as a burden, we should see it as a privilege. So if love shows whether or not we're alive because it's our calling, then we should be clear about what it is and what it is and what it does and doesn't look like. So let's keep going and see how John fleshes that out. That was the longest point. Don't be scared. Point number two, love doesn't kill. He's going to tell us a little bit more what it looks like, and he's going to tell us that love doesn't kill. Sometimes the most helpful way to help someone to understand something is to tell them what it's not. Tell them what it doesn't look like. And that's what John is going to do here. He's told us to love one another, and he's going to give us a counterexample. that may seem extreme at first, but he'll show us why he said it. 1 John 3.12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. When we think of murderous people, when we think of evil people, who are the first people to come to mind for us? Usually like Hitler or Stalin. Right? Maybe Americans, it's Osama bin Laden or ISIS. Right? These are terrible people known for their murder and their terrorism. Well, for, for Jewish readers, that person in their mind would be Cain. Cain is the murderer. He's the first murderer. That's who they would associate murder with. Right? If murder was a corporation, Cain would be the face of the company. Cain is the poster boy for murder. We read the story earlier in Genesis 4. You're probably wondering, why do we read this murder verse in the middle of me worshiping? But John brings it up here as, as an example of, of, of brotherly love and what it should not look like. So in Genesis 4, we see that Cain and Abel both give these offerings, and the Lord is more pleased with Abel's than Cain, and, and Cain murders his brother. And it's a, it's a tragic story. We should not mythologize it as if uh, it's some myth or some story that somebody made up. It's a tragic story. These were very real siblings, very real brothers, just like the siblings in this church. Think about a family in this church that has more than one child. This is one of those siblings murdering the other. It's a tragic story that John brings up here. Murder itself is, for many of us, the worst thing we can imagine. For people who live in neighborhoods like ours or cities like ours, murder's not that rare. But it's even worse when it happens within families. I remember a while back seeing a, a story on, I think it was 2020, where uh, a kid murdered his parents because he felt like they didn't let him do some of the stuff he wanted to do. So he wasn't able to go to a party, and so he murdered his parents and stashed their body in their bedroom and had a party in the living room with his friends. And I bring that up because I want us to feel the weight of murder within a family. It's evil. And it's hard to even imagine. 
But I hope we see what John is doing here, why he brings up this story, because he's making a comparison. Because as we've talked about, those of us in Christ are brothers and sisters. And when we don't love one another, it's even more senseless than when people in the world don't, because we're family. Right? A lack of love among siblings is it's even more senseless and strange. You know, for us to look at our brothers and sisters with malice and hatred instead of love is inconsistent with the new life we have. But there's something else that we should notice about Cain's family ties. He says that Cain is of the evil one. Other ones say he belonged to the evil one. And just above, he'd been talking about those who are of the devil or sons of the devil. And I think that's what he means here with the evil one. And so as he elaborates on the story, he, he's talking about the, the family that, that Cain is in. You're in um, Christ or you're in Adam. You're either like Christ, you're like God, or you're like the evil one. And there's a connection to our spiritual life. Ephesians 2 talks about us being dead in our trespasses at sin. And we're following the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan, the great adversary, right? We followed him. We're more like him than God when we're born. Scripture tells us in our sin, we resemble the devil, which sounds really harsh, but it's true. And the reason I point that up is because we should know that we are not that far from Cain. We should not look at Cain like he's some kind of monster. Right. We don't know a lot about Cain. So this could have been how he always was, always angry, has a terrible temper. He may have been like that all the time. Or he may have been more just like a regular one of us who just lost his temper in this particular moment. Or just lost his temper from time to time. Just like it's unhelpful to talk about Bible heroes like they're perfect and never made any mistakes. It's just as unhelpful to talk about some of the villains in scripture as if they're monsters who we can't relate to in any way, shape, or form. Because then we're not able to see ourselves in a story. Cain was not some monster. And if we couldn't relate to Cain, John wouldn't bring him up as a counterexample. So you may say, okay, then why would Cain do something like that? Verse 12, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Right, the Lord didn't, wasn't as pleased with his offering as he was with his brothers. But you see, he, he doesn't get mad at God. He's mad at his brother. He's not just mad because his own deeds were evil, but because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Seems like there's some envy at play. Cain was envious of Abel. He was jealous that the Lord liked his offering, and that led him to murder him, right? So what we see with Cain, this counterexample, is not love for a brother, but hate, right? If love is this holy affection for someone and selfless commitment to their good, then hatred is um, this evil disdain and selfish commitment just to yourself, right? It's ill will towards somebody. Here's the thing about hatred. Hatred only sees other people through the lens of how they relate to you. Right? I can't see you the way that God sees you as a beautiful creature made in the image of God because all I can think about is me. And what I see through the lens of me is that you make me look bad. And that's because hate elevates self above God. Hatred elevates self above God. Cain was so selfish and obsessed that rather than his brother look better than him, he'd rather take his life and we're more like Cain than we think we are. I wonder if you've ever found yourself disappointed when something good happens to somebody else. You ever seen something good happen to somebody, maybe an engagement? Maybe they get pregnant. Maybe they get a promotion. Maybe a relationship is good, right? 
and your heart drops instead of rejoicing with them? That's envy. That's Cain-like, right? Ill will towards others, especially brothers in the faith, is it's so often tied to this envy and this covetousness and discontentment. And a lot of times, the main reason we don't like people really doesn't have anything to do with them. It's more about us and our own issues. Right? We're insecure, so somebody else has something we want, and so we don't like them because of that. And that's we're being like Cain. Cain was discouraged. And sometimes we feel discouraged when we look at other people and what they have, and we obsess over it. And we run it around in our minds over and over and over again. That's all we think about. And I just want to ask, when was the last time comparing yourself to somebody else was an encouragement to you? When was the last time just endlessly comparing yourself to somebody who has more to you helped you to love them more? That's not how it works. That's not how the human heart works. If you obsess over and meditate on things that people have that you don't have, it is going to inevitably lead to envy. It's not going to help you to love them more. So we have to stop doing that. We have to stop pitying ourselves. When we do that comparison, self-pity, harboring envy, you know, in our hearts we feel like the victim. Poor me, they have this job that I wanted. But we're not the victim. We're actually the, the attacker. Right? We're attacking them in our hearts. We're, we're putting hatred and envy towards them, bitterness. We're attacking them with those things. Don't make yourself feel like the victim when you're actually the attacker, being more like Cain. Envy is so obsessed with self that it has to take others out in order to exalt self. It's all about me. So if you're doing something that doesn't help me, you have to be dealt with. Right? Envy chokes out love. When something good happens, love says, I'm glad for him. But envy says, that should have been me. And that's what we have to kill. Right? Cain couldn't seek his brother's good because all he cared about was his own. And I want you to know, if you want to think about what threatens our love for one another, the biggest threat to our love for one another is our own wicked self-worship. The biggest obstacle to loving others is our own wicked self-worship. Because when we worship ourselves instead of the true God, we're willing to sacrifice others on the altar in a number of different ways in order to exalt ourselves. When we underestimate others, it's because we underestimate God and we overestimate ourselves. So all of our hearts are prone to be like Cain. Now, murder and envy, they spring from the same evil posture of heart. So we, we don't want to be like Cain. And John throws in this little thing. He digresses for a second, and he says this. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. What does that have to do with what he was just talking about? Right? Did he get distracted? Is this a, a rabbit trail? Well, it's really clear in Scripture. What happened here with Cain and Abel isn't a rare thing. This happens from time to time. Where those whose deeds are evil hate those whose deeds are righteous. Proverbs 29.10 says, bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. And as Jesus prays in John 17, he says, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. He's saying, look, Cain killed Abel because he was mad that he was evil and, and, and Abel was righteous. And now he's saying, don't be surprised when the exact same thing happens to you. A lot of us, we keep getting shocked every time the world doesn't like us for following Jesus. 
And that can only be because either we don't read our Bibles or we don't believe our Bibles. Because Scripture keeps telling us over and over this is going to happen. And John says it right here, do not be surprised. And when we know it's coming and we're not surprised, we're not so caught off guard by it that it, that it threatens uh, our firmness in following Jesus, we should expect it to happen. And we should be able to stand firm and love Jesus in the midst of it. And the reason why those whose deeds are evil hate those whose deeds are righteous is because they take it as a condemnation of them. So if someone says, hey, Trip, let's go to the strip club. And I say, no, I don't want to look upon those women with lust. Well, that seems like a condemnation of them since they do want to do it. And it leads to hatred because it feels like condemnation. But when we receive that hatred, we cannot fall back. We need to stand firm. And we don't need to return that hatred with more hatred, right? When people hate us, we should respond to them in love. When people hate us, we should respond with humility, not self-righteousness. So don't be surprised this week if your coworkers are hostile towards you for your faith. And don't be shocked when you're hearing the news of Christians being pushed out of public spaces because they believe Scripture. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. And just a real quick side note. Some of us jump in the, the role of those in the world, and we actually have a hatred towards other Christians. Right. We we listen to the world talk about how self-righteous and hypocritical all Christians are. And we say, I am not like that. And, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't like his people that much either. I love Jesus, but his people. Mm. And I just want you to know when you do that, you say you don't like to be around Christians. I just want you to know that your self-righteousness is just as bad as theirs. You're doing the very self-righteous thing that you're saying makes you not like them. So I'd encourage you to stop judging them from afar and instead love them from up close. So love's our calling. It tells us what love is like. Love doesn't kill. And like we'll see in the next point, if, if we have this kind of hatred that Cain had, we should question whether or not we're actually spiritually alive. The last point, love is your pulse. Right? Now think this here is the the, uh, the kind of apex, the climax of this passage. Love is your pulse. How do you know whether or not you're dead or alive? Physically. So if I was up here preaching and I just fell on the floor and stopped moving, and you knew it wasn't just a praise dance, how would you tell whether or not I was just sleeping or if I died? What would you do? You, you would come up, you'd, you'd feel for my pulse. You'd feel for my heartbeat. You'd see if I was still breathing, because those things show that we're alive. But when it comes to spiritual life, that heartbeat, that pulse is love. The pulse of a person who's spiritually alive is love. And if that pulse is missing, you're left wondering whether or not they're actually alive. Spiritual death means we're lifeless and capable of anything that looks like life. And so sometimes we think people are alive if they just go to church a lot or if they use churchy language. That rhymes. Too blessed to be stressed, brother. <laughs> That's not what John is telling us. I mean, he tells us what to look for, how we know we're Christians. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You know, you notice John, he clearly thinks that we can know whether or not we're alive. And he doesn't say, hey, look back at that prayer you repeated. That's not what he said. He doesn't say, hey, look back to vacation Bible school when you were a kid. He doesn't say, hey, that time you were baptized or that time you walked up the aisle. 
He doesn't say, hey, think about how much you know about systematic theology, uh, all those articles you read on Gospel Coalition. Mm -mm. He says, check your pulse. Your pulse is love. That, that's what he tells them to look for. Um, when I was single, um, just being sick just meant I was sick. If I wasn't sick, then I wasn't sick, right? Now that I am married with children, if one person gets sick, it's only a matter of time before it picks off everybody else in the house. It's like there's a little sniper with illnesses just waiting for a moment to pick us all off. No matter what I do, no matter how many sheets I wash, no matter how many times I push my kids away from hugs, I will get sick too. And the way I know that I finally got sick, the way I know those germs are inside me is the external symptoms. I sneeze, I feel tired, I cough. Now, in the same way, the way that we know that something has happened on the inside of us, that we have spiritual life on the inside of us, is the external symptoms. And the only external symptom of being made alive, the, the main one is love. So when they say, I don't know what's going on inside of me. I don't, I don't know about my heart. Well, you can know what's going on in your heart by what happens with your actions. Love. Love. I know there's some people here today, as there always are in any room of Christians who are struggling, knowing whether or not they are really saved. And sometimes passages like this can be a discouragement to us, right? Because they call us to ask tough questions. But these kind of passages can be encouraging, too, because here's what John's saying. He is not asking us to love perfectly, right? He's saying, check to see if you love the brothers. Is there love of God's people present? So for some of us, that pulse is going to be clear and easily recognizable. For others of us, that pulse is going to be faint. But there is a pulse, right? So praise God that he's given us a way to see. He's shown us something to find, not a complicated formula. That's good news. So look, if you have no love for God's people, I do not want this passage to be a comfort to you. I want it to disturb you. I want you to ask yourself tough questions. Right, but if you look for a pulse and there is love for God's people, then I want this to encourage you and to comfort you. And I want you to trust Christ more and seek to love his people even more. John keeps going. And he's not holding back. This is what he says. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Those are strong words. So not only has he talked about how Cain was the worst for murdering, he's saying, and if you hate your brothers, you're a murderer. And what does he mean by that? Does he mean if you hate your brother in your heart, then they're going to fall down dead? Of course not. He's making a point similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Right? Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Too many times our assumption is that God only cares about the stuff that we actually do. And if it stops in our hearts, that God doesn't really care about it that much. And when Jesus preached on the Sermon of the Mount, and what John is talking about here is that God cares about all of you. He cares about what you do, and he cares about what you think, and he cares about what you feel, and he cares about your motivations and desires. God cares about all of us, and in Christ, God has redeemed all of us. So when we hate our brothers, that springs from the same sinful heart as murder. It's about the heart. 
So if love for one another is the pulse that says we're alive, hate for one another is the decomposing stench that shows that we're dead. Doesn't exist in a heart that's alive. Look, I know there are some people here today who are struggling with bitterness, struggling with unforgiveness, maybe even with somebody in this room who's sinned against you in terrible ways. And it's really hard to forgive them. Because you think, man, how can I just let them off the hook? I can't just act like everything is all good. After they did this to me, they don't deserve forgiveness. And I would say, I don't know what that sin is, and, you know, I don't know how difficult it is to deal with. I don't know if that's with a friend. I don't know if that's with a spouse. I, I don't know what that is. And I actually agree with you that they don't deserve your forgiveness. They don't deserve forgiveness, but neither do you. And we are those who've been radically forgiven by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And if anybody should be filled with the kind of sacrificial and radical love and forgiveness, it should be those who've been redeemed by Jesus and indwelt by his spirit. They don't deserve forgiveness, but neither do you. You are forgiven and you should forgive them. We should love one another, even when it's hard. You know, when someone sins against us in crazy ways, it's an amazing opportunity to show off the love of Jesus. Right? It's an incredible time to be able to radically love like Jesus did. To be able to say, even though you did this to me, I forgive you. Because my Lord forgave me for many more things than just this. John says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that murderers have no eternal life abiding in him. John's driving home that point. Anyone who displays and holds on to this kind of anger and hatred towards someone can't do that. And at the same time, be a child of God. Watch your heart for the bitterness and the envy and the hate. The only reason any of us in this room have eternal life abiding in us, that eternal life he's talking about. The only reason any of us have it abiding in us is not because we've earned it, not because we've deserved it. So if you hear this and and you're afraid that you may not know Jesus, you're like, oh, there may not be any love in my life. The response from you should not be to then go out and try to do nice things for Christian people, right, to try to earn it. The response is to trust Jesus, Right, if I found that I was physically dead, not sure how I would be conscious, but then I knew there was a guy over there who raises people from life, I'm not going to just try to move more. I'm going to say, hey, raise me to life, right? Jesus is the one that gives spiritual life. 1 John 4 a, this is what it says. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Any real spiritual life comes through him. All of us deserve to remain in death because we've sinned against God. We've committed crimes. The most heinous crime in the universe is to sin against this great God, and all of us are guilty of it, and we deserve death. But God was so good that he sent Jesus to die for us. Jesus could have easily come to this earth. Jesus could have come to this earth and decided that his main thing that he wanted to do was get revenge, to exact revenge on everybody who's ever sinned against God. But instead, he laid his life down. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the opposite of Cain. Right? Cain was so self-interested that he murdered his brother to serve himself. 
But Jesus was so loving that he gave himself up to be murdered and to make us his brothers. That's what Christ did. Jesus didn't take our lives. Jesus gave his own in order to rescue our lives. Jesus didn't kill us. He raised us from the dead. Jesus is the greatest example of love that this world will ever see. I've often had people ask me. I was doing this Bible study in D.C. They said, hey, you're just saying we can be forgiven. Can a murderer be forgiven? Can murderers go to heaven? Can murderers have eternal life? And this passage is saying, look, we all know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But if that murderer would repent and turn away from his sins and trust in Jesus, right? If he would stop letting that be what characterizes him so that we can't call him murderer, then of course he can be saved. And you can plug any sin into that. Can that liar be saved? Yes, if they turn away and trust Jesus. Can that adulterer be saved? Yes, if they turn away and trust Jesus. Plug anything in that. If we would turn and trust this Jesus who paid for our sins, we can be saved and we can have eternal life. That's the amazing news. So I want to ask you again today, are you alive? If you're not sure, then, you know, I hope you look to the right place to answer that question. John tells us that it's love. Love is what shows us whether or not we're alive. In that movie, The Sixth Sense, after that psychologist, after Bruce Willis's character realized that he was dead, his life started to flash before his eyes, and he thought back to all the times where he was talking to people and they ignored him. And when he thought his wife was just mad at him, she wasn't talking to him. He realized all these things. It wasn't because people didn't like me anymore. It was because I was dead. And I hope that we don't do like him and overlook the signs in our own lives. My prayer is that you would examine your life and you would think back to whether or not that love for God's people is present. And that that would lead you to turn to Christ, to trust him more, to love his people more. It's in his love that we trust and it's his love that actually empowers hours. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you, God, so much for your word. We thank you that we don't have to make up things, God, but that we can look to you. And then, Father, we pray you would help us to love like you do. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.